Welcome to Who All Gonna Be There, a podcast by artists for artists. We talk cash shit about everything, sometimes we get messy, and it all counts as art because we say so. I'm Mel. Today I decided to be black and a woman. I'm also trying to be an artist, so you know what that means. 25 jobs for the pay of one. This week, I'm a vending machine stocking specialist, a forensic (laughs) epidemiologist, and I also moonlight as a public relations advisor to Sean King. I'm Maximiliano, a.k.a. Maxi on the Move, a.k.a. Maxi Need Boxes. Um, I'm currently moving, so I need some boxes. <laughs> um, for our new listeners, this is how you can support uh, Nat Turner Project. We have a Patreon page with exclusive podcast episodes, which are only available behind the paywall, and we get extra, extra messy. We have an Etsy store where you can buy stuff. We got tons of merch on there, um, publications totes buttons um subscribe to us on itunes um follow us find our podcast on soundcloud spotify youtube stitcher um at nat turner project on facebook on instagram leave reviews leave comments email us at nat turner project zero at gmail.com um we'll read your comments we'll take questions whatever you want to do to reach out to us um yeah, hit us up. All right. Thanks, Max. So this is the second episode of our Black Abbey series. Black Abbey is a black artist and writer's residency that Nat Turner Project co-hosts with Sharita Town of a Black Art Ecology of Portland and Alberta Abbey. One of the artists in this residency is someone who, if you've been paying any sort of attention to art in Portland, you should recognize. And if you don't, I have some questions. It's Manuel Arturo Abrio. Hi, Manny. What's up? Hey, all. Thank you for having me on this podcast. Thank you for doing all this labor that you all do. Uh, as you know, and as some people know who are listening, I'm a big fan of NTP and uh, this idea of the freedom of art, imagining a world where art can actually exist, like functionless, autonomous objects that 
aren't part of this political order of oppression and, and violation, you know? So I, I appreciate the imaginative work that you all do, the organizational work that you all do. Um, folks who may not know, uh, NTP has curated me twice in two different shows, so I'm really uh, happy to have had that experience with y'all. Uh, once at the PNCA 511 Gallery and once at the Paragon Gallery, I believe. Mm. Yep. So those are two really awesome experiences. Uh, and yeah, people should definitely be buying stuff, supporting NTP, listening to the, the, the podcast, engaging your personal practices as well. So those are all important things that people should be doing. I'm Manuel Arturo Abreu. I'm a Dominican poet artist from the Bronx. Um, black or mixed, whatever term you prefer to use. Uh, I've been in Portland since 2009. I work in text, ephemeral sculpture, and photography. I do a lot of critical research and gesture-based practice. Uh, a lot of the stuff that I've been doing recently, such as during the residency at the Alberta Abbey, has been this public pedagogical work around uh, two different things. One is bringing heavy theoretical issues to more publicly accessible language. And then the other thing is a kind of showcase of Dominican, uh, Afro-Dominican uh, practitioners that I am really uh, inspired and indebted by, inspired by and indebted to. So those are two things I've been working on at the residency. Okay, um, thank you, Manny. Um, Max, um, Manny has so kindly shared a little bit about their practice um, and what they're getting into right now, but if you could be so kind as to read their <coughs> bio. Yes, this is uh, Manny's bio, sorry for any redundancy. Um, Manuel Arturo is a poet and artist from the Bronx. They studied linguistics, got their BA from Reed College in 2014. Abreu works in text, ephemeral sculpture, and what is at hand in a process of magical thinking with intention to ritual aspects of aesthetics. They are the author of two books of poetry and one book of critical art writing. The Oregon Book Art, uh, the Oregon Book Awards, Sarah Winnie Muka, creative nonfiction finalist, Incalculable Loss, 2018. Their writing has appeared at Rhizome, Art in America, Shira, The New Inquiry. Art Practical, SFMOMA, Open Space, AQNB, etc. Abreu also composes club feasible worship music as Tabor Dark with nine releases to date. They also co-founded and co-run Homeschool, a free pop-up art school in Portland in its fifth year of uh, curriculum. Thank you. I forgot I sent the super long one. Thank you for reading all that. Yeah, no problem. Um... <laughs> Manny, jumping into the questions. First and foremost, how are you doing? Yeah, somehow. Uh, so we're all still alive, so that's cool. Um, yeah, I'm navigating and uh, maintaining, you know. I, I feel like I've been prepared for the pandemic for a while in the sense of being kind of a, a shut-in, depressed person, so it's... Mm. It's this kind of sardonic sense of like, hey, I'm already prepared for that aspect of what's going on. Um, and we've all dealt with fake white allies and shit. So that aspect of, of stuff right now is, is also maybe something that I feel prepared for in a sense. But uh, yeah, I would like to see maybe more money come out of all this guilt. That would be nice. Mm -hmm. uh, I've been mm -hmm. working as much as I can to stabilize my income uh, post-pandemic. and. Uh, 
I definitely want to shout out the NTP BAEP uh, micro grants that y'all have been doing. That's a really awesome community effort. So shouts out to that. Thanks. Um, yeah, shout out to Sharita Town and all the folks who have donated to help make that possible. Um, um, you mentioned fake white allies. And yes, we've, we have all been preparing for that, but it does feel these days that that's turned up, like amped up to like 10 now. Yes. Um, how are you dealing with that? Like, are you just kind of like ignoring it? Are you calling folks out? Like what, what's, I, I, I think that I still struggle with like ways to manage that, especially when there's like a barrage coming at you the way it is at this particular moment. So I'm just curious about how other folks are dealing with it. Totally, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I've been ignoring a lot of emails and social media DMs and stuff because uh, that doesn't ever really go anywhere. So I've just been ignoring that. And that's something I've, I've done for a while. Like, I haven't accepted non-black Facebook requests for a couple of years, and mm-hmm. that's worked out pretty well. Yeah. Um, yeah, again, I would like to see more actual resources being shifted, people stepping out of their positions. Uh, with the, with our context, it was really resonant to see this Black Square thing, because, you know, we all know this, like, racist history of the Black Square, Malevich's Black Square. Mm-hmm. Uh, or maybe we all don't, so I can describe it a bit. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Malevich's Black Square, you know, the Russian abstract painting from 1913 or whatever, it was quote-unquote discovered uh, in 2015 to have a quote-unquote hidden message behind it which was a quote from Alphonse Alaise's series of these kind of monochromatic uh, one-liners. So we had one that was a black square and the caption was uh, black people fighting in a cave. He had one that was a yellow square and it was like jaundiced cuckolds uh, playing with ochre. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> so Malevich is not hiding anything. It's more of an immaterial reference to Alaise and this kind of uh, lost history of Dadaism that goes back to this group that Alaise was part of called uh, Les Arts Incoyants, uh, the Incoherent Arts uh, in France in the late 19th century. And so, yeah, people are framing it as like, oh, Malevich was hiding this, or he put it there and then covered it up. But I, I see it more as he took the caption of Alaise's uh, work and put it inside the square itself. And so it's almost like this white supremacist reference of the racism of abstraction to me. Like, that's how I read that piece. Because mm. before mm-hmm. the contemporary moment, I don't think modernists were ashamed of their coloniality. People like Picasso were really excited to do that kind of stuff um, and talked about it. They weren't shy about it. They weren't ashamed of it. It was part of their artistic patrimony and their rights as Western white male artists, right? Um so yeah, the, the the idea that it was hidden, that's kind of a contemporary reading through the lens of white guilt, I think. Uh, mm-hmm. But yeah, so I see everyone posting the Black Square for Blackout Tuesday or whatever just made me think of all that. And I was like, wow, <laughs> like, we really haven't gone anywhere <laughs> since that, that moment, you know? <laughs> yeah, that, that Blackout Tuesday thing was such a hot mess on so many levels. Uh, it was weird and embarrassing, but also there's a metaphor in there somewhere. So, um, you mentioned that you are, like, you're kind of used to, you're being indoors and shut in, so to speak, and I think I share that with you, so this has been a pretty seamless transition, 
But, I mean, there are moments, even for me, where, you know, I feel overwhelmed by what is happening in this particular moment because it just all seems like so much. And I was wondering if you have moments like that or if this just feels like a natural progression. I think there's still a sense of loss for me of the social or public space because uh, I did grow up very uh, disabled. Like I was in and out of hospitals a lot. But as I kind of became an adult, a lot of those health issues went away. And so I, I was actually going out and doing stuff and like, you know, going out and drinking or whatever people do to socialize. Um, mm-hmm. So there was some sense of loss around that. Um, depression has probably persisted since I was a child. So that, that aspect of wanting to just stay home and not do anything never went away. Uh, but there were definitely, I think since maybe like from ages 18 till now, I'm 28. Um, I was going out more in those 10 years. I spent way more time outside than the first 18 years of my life. So there is a sense of loss, uh, but I am ultimately prepared or, or okay with it. Like it doesn't seem like, like the people that I'm keeping in touch with or trying to keep in touch with that's still happening. So it's okay. Yeah. Um, I think it's a good opportunity for stillness and for people to just think about like, you have to take concrete action, man. You can't keep doing this black square stuff. Like, yeah, it, it doesn't work. You know, it doesn't do anything. And I get that the intention, which, you know, we should point out that it was two black women had an idea in the music industry yes. and that was taken by white people and it became some whole other thing. Yes. About inaction. Yes. Right? It's, it's, if you're going to step off, step off the mic, give your platform to somebody else. Good. But this performativity, it's not doing anything, right? And it's, it's yeah. Yeah. Sorry, because... I, I forgot what your original question was. Um, no, I mean, I'm I'm happy to like meander this way because I thank you for bringing that up because it was originally started by two black women in the music industry for a very specific purpose, and then it was right, a pro- which I'm not clear on to be to be fair. I don't remember exactly what they were intending to do with it, but it was different from. Um, it was actually it was meant for industry folks to po- to like not post things on that day to give space to black folks in that industry. That's what that was supposed to be about originally. So it was industry specific. And then somehow it got appropriated in this way for something completely different. And then became this like tool of inaction <laughs> um, and performativity, which seems to be a common thing. Um, <coughs> well, not posting became posting at some point with, white, with the white lens on it. That's what their idea of it was. Like, well, let's post something. Yeah. They literally said, don't post anything. Yeah. For their industry. Yeah. So I'm not exactly sure where the black square came from. So. Um, but I, until you said um, what you said, I, had, I didn't even think to connect it to the black squares within the contemporary art context, which adds a whole other layer to it. Um, yeah, Arya Dean pointed that out in some really good tweets. Oh. So, yeah, she's always ahead of the curve and, and put that together for folks. Yeah. Wow. Um, so let's talk um, a little bit about your practice, your praxis. Um, there's, like, a lot of moving parts, as um, listeners can glean from your bio, um, which in my opinion, is quite condensed, actually. <laughs> um, 
You, your practice involves research, redistribution, exhibition, sound, music, textiles, writing, structural critique. It goes on. Like, there's a lot of stuff. And, I mean, obviously, um, for anyone who works in multimedia, uh, multi-genre stuff, like, we know that all of these pieces connect to each other in a way that is meaningful and necessary for you. But... Is there a kind of prioritization of, of these different aspects in some way, or is it uh, sort of like a stream of consciousness um, practice? Like, how does this work for you? Yeah, so I think that that's tied, sorry to jump ahead, but it's tied to this question that you ask later in the document about crisis of professionalism, mm -hmm. right? Because the way that I'm putting things into the public has to do with money and survival and, and what's being paid, mm -hmm. right? So, you know, freelance writing that pays like 50 to 150. That's kind of the standard fee for that kind of thing, like a thousand word essay. Yeah. So I do that fairly often for that level of money, right? Uh, honoraria for exhibitions, uh, arts grants and stuff like that. That's a higher level of money. So I'll, I'll do that. I'll frame stuff in that way when I'm reaching for those, uh, those goals, I guess, money wise. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, deciding what goes into the public for me is always this kind of fraught question because I have, and I think most black people have, just the ongoing creative practice and a, a rich interior life that is inherently creative and abstract, not only because of navigating the reality of the world, like it's these things are being imposed on people that don't make any sense, right? They're, they're fully just violent and nonsensical and, and we navigate that through abstraction, right? So I when I'm deciding what to go, what goes into the public and how I'm framing my work uh, and describing it in specific ways, it's definitely, uh, it feels problematic for me or it feels inherently tied to value. Um, so critique a lot of the time is kind of the, uh, the gatekeeper, I would say, or the thing that I use to choose what goes from my private practice into my public practice and how in terms of framing. So I, you know, critique is a useful, first of all, it's, it's kind of ephemeral in the sense that it's always parasitic on its object, mm -hmm. right? A critique is about something. Mm -hmm. It's, it's asking for something to change. It's investing in that thing by asking for change around it and within it. Um, and it's necessary as well. I think it's, it's when you're a fairly isolated person, you can shield yourself to some degree to like just the intensity of ignorance and violence in the world, but it's important to sit with that reality and, and try to engage it as much as you can. And I think a critical perspective is a good way of doing that, especially in this fraught context of like commodifying my creativity, right? And commodifying my, the way I'm weaponizing abstraction to navigate oppressive realities and the way I'm just inherently abstract in an, in an interior sense, right? So yeah. It's always a, a, an interior conversation that I'm having. Like, so for recently, for example, uh, I'm going to send y'all some acemic writing. Mm -hmm. It's not something that I've really shown too often before. Uh, so the conversation around how to show it is more recent, maybe like in the past year, because it is so tied to like, for me, it's tied to religion and stuff and to like the idea that the hand, when it makes marks that are freed from making letters, making seams, you know, Barth, uh, Roland Barth says that the seam is the basic unit of meaning, 
So to be acemic is to make marks without reference to seams. Uh, and I think that it brings something out of me. Like I really like that part of my private practice and I, I the, pro- the problem or the opportunity of how to frame it, how to show it is one that's been uh, recent on my mind, like in the past year maybe. Okay, and then um, this question kind of tacks onto the, the conversation. Um, how do you like deal with when um, maybe like somebody wants like a certain kind of art from you? Do you like always feel like the obligation to give like that kind of art versus being like, oh, somebody wants this, but I actually uh, do a different thing or um, deciding like, um, you know, I guess like, yeah, navigating that. Great question. I'm not going to make something new if there's like those kinds of limitations on it. If someone's approaching me and wants something new and they have like an idea of what they want, it's not going to work for me. Uh, So I tend to more in that context, just provide something I've already made that I think fits. And then the production is limited to just producing language that frames it in a way that makes sense to the person that's asking that. And that for me feels justified for whatever they're offering money wise. Um, If someone approaches me in a more free context, like let's say with the NTP example, you all came to me and we're just like, Hey, you want to show? And I was like, yeah, I want to show something. We sat down and had some conversations about that. And that was it. I mean, there wasn't any like, Hey, we need like some video. We need some sculpture or something. Right. So there wasn't any set of limitations, uh, which are ultimately arbitrary or self-serving. Right. Mm-hmm. And in the context of my practice are inherently limiting because it, I'm, I'm, I need this amorphousness or this ability to decide on the spot what the actual thing is going to look like or feel like. Because yeah. otherwise you're, you're trying to extract or you're trying to make concrete uh, things that I don't want to make concrete in that way. Right? You're, if, you're, if you're approaching me and saying like, oh, I want to commission a new video about this specific thing, it's it, there would have to be a lot, way more context around that. And like that person's devotion to that topic, for example, like Mandy Harris Williams commissioned a video from me called Que Significa Ser Latine? Uh, it's an English language 20 minute video that I made in October, 2019. I made that one in residency too, actually at Centrum in uh, Fort Ward and at Port Townsend. And uh, yeah, so it's a 20 minute video on how Latinidad is a colonial concept and how mestizaje is a eugenic, anti-black, anti-indigenous concept. Um, so yeah, she, she approached me and we had conversation around her specific interest in that topic, right? Uh, extended conversation, deep conversation, personal stuff. And so for what she was offering and for the specific medium and topic she wanted, it made complete sense. And I felt like I was happy to do, to be in service of the salon that she was putting together based around this kind of uh, video-based work on Latinidad. Um, so that's one example of a very medium-specific commission that works out really well. Um, because there's levels of care around it. There's a scaffolding of care. Uh, I think that's a phrase that Christina Sharp uses. I really like that phrase. Mm. Yeah. I mean, you you are also a curator, so you kind of, mm-hmm. you migrate between multiple roles in this process. Um, yeah. I like this term scaffolding of care. Like what what does that look like as an artist and is that inherently different 
from what that would look like as a curator? Yeah, it is. It's not inherently, but a lot of the work around it can look different. I mean, in how I conceive of my art practice in some specific project context, the emails and the conversations might not necessarily be part of the work. But when I'm curating, uh, whether it's whether I'm thinking of it as an artistic thing or not, it, those things are inherently involved, kind of administrative labor, mm. um, the labor of protecting your artist from whatever stuff might be happening. Uh, so there's, just, I mean, the distinction isn't inherent and there are people. Uh, and sometimes I feel like when I curate, I'm, I'm approaching it as an artist, but there is that part of, in curating, there's the inherent administrative capacity that you have to take on. Uh, and scaffolding of care, I'm Googling it because I, I want to make sure I'm not... Okay. Uh, just randomly assigning quotes to people like this. <laughs> it's not good. Second. <clears throat> Alright. It is... Uh... So yeah, did you see this hyperallergic article about... Mm. Um, Samaria Rice and the cancelled exhibition at Mocha Cleveland no I haven't seen it a little bit of it after I think I saw you posted it and read a little bit about it what? yeah it's a great article um, but so the person that says scaffolding of care uh, her name is Latanya Autry okay. the Gun curatorial fellow at Mocha uh, so I, I misremembered because Christina Sharp is mentioned elsewhere in this article but yeah so this is kind of like a black male version of Dana Schutz. Like it's oh. this Afro-Latino artist, uh, Sean something. Sean Leonardo. Sean Leonardo, yeah. He was making like, uh, yeah, it's really weird. I mean, he was making death portraits of people, that, black people that were murdered by police. And instead of a person in the, in the pictures, it was void. And I think there were illustrations. Uh, and so it's this kind of gesture of removal uh, and then the show got canceled and he felt that it was censorship because he wasn't part of the conversation but the conversation was the family saying no and that's enough he doesn't need to be involved in that right um and so yeah this whole situation is unfolding right now this article came out yesterday wow and it's a legal thing too because um samaria rice and the rice family filed uh, a trademark on the name of tamir rice so leonardo can't actually show that piece he cannot is liable for a lawsuit if he does. Huh. That's Which doesn't matter. I mean, that's a legalist thing, but it's like, if he's operating solely from self-interest, that should be enough for him to not do that. But right. it would also be great if you could take into account the family's wishes and the idea of consent. It seems really basic. Many artists have approached Samaria Rice and, and worked with her. I mean, Michael... Rajowski comes to mind. There's some people mentioned in this article, but yeah, Rajowski comes to mind and some other folks. They explicitly approached her and asked for consent and worked with her on the piece. So it's a very different context. And that's that's the scaffolding of care that Autry is talking about, I believe. Mm -hmm. it, it starts at conversation and then it becomes about resources. It would be nice if it were the other way around, but there's still this idea of like the face and the encounter and like, justifying your needs or something articulating your needs right yeah humanism and stuff 
But yeah, maybe I should say for people who just don't know me at all, like what I actually do, uh, what I actually work in. Um, we haven't done that already. I feel like we have. Well, just I just want to be clear for anyone that's confused or something, um, because it is a lot. I mean, I I am on this amorphous tip, so it's hard to explain sometimes. But yeah, I do things in video. I do things in sound. Uh, I have a project called Taper Dark that's in the bio. I do things with critique and pedagogy and research. Uh, and sometimes it takes on a curatorial aspect, like with homeschool, uh, free pop-up art school in Portland. Mm-hmm. Um, I write things, essays, poetry, uh, some fiction, not a lot of published fiction, but that's maybe that's a feature thing, hopefully. Mm-hmm. Um, more recently, writing a lot of critical prose, art writing, writing around race, critical race theory, critical technology, studies and stuff like this um i perform sometimes too i don't do that very often but it is something that i do mm-hmm. and some of my projects have been performative like the garage residency was a self-declared artist residency behind a former reed college punk house i lived there for six years and just said that it was an artist residency it was i was very poor for the first three years of it and then essentially rich for the next three years of it because i got a job as a compliance analyst at a fintech company a financial technology company uh and so yeah the garage residency kind of had two phases Uh, and in the first phase i was into kind of coping with my own precarity i was living on like 4k a year and so the performativity of it was the idea that inhabiting a space in precarity is not different from making a work right and so this is a kind of inherently afro-diasporic idea of what art or what abstraction is it is the fact of survival in and of itself. Uh, but then in the second phase, when I had this tech job, um, I got really interested in just giving as much of my money away as I could. So that was really fun too. Uh, I really recently have been thinking about like, yo, I just want to get a tech job again and do that. Because that was the, my best. I felt really good doing that. <laughs> <laughs> but, but you put in a lot of hours at that job, right? It was an atrocity. I mean, I was a compliance analyst. I made 55K a year. So I was definitely the, the lowest paid person on the IT team. They were all making 150000 a year what? at least. What? Um, well, yeah, because they're actual IT people. I was in compliance. So I was just like writing the compliance documentation, making sure that people were complying with different like oversights, state, corporate, federal regulations around uh, data hygiene, customer data protection, et cetera, stuff like this. Was, so it's, it's more in the soft services concept of tech because I wasn't actually coding anything. I was more like looking at their code, writing these policies, editing previous policies, being the liaison with uh, compliance auditors and stuff like this. Yeah. Was that, were those skills that you knew going into the job or were they things that you picked up on as, as you worked in that field? No, those are skills that I had to some extent. I mean, a lot of the work was around research, Mm -hmm. legal research, um, corporate policy research, Mm -hmm. uh, different oversight bodies. Like the Visa and MasterCard companies, they have an oversight body called PCI. Mm -hmm. So in terms of my interaction with external auditors, the PCI was a big thing. Payment card industry data security standard. Uh, So if you use credit cards to process any kind of payments, like if you're you know, a fintech company or a light bill company, and you process credit cards, you have to follow their procedures. 
you have to comply with those things. So that was a big part of my uh, policy writing and liaison with external auditors. Wow. And that comes from a, a work history of being like a research assistant, being a tech department assistant, um, being a resource assistant at a language lab. Um, so I had some of these skills coming in. And I took computer science in high school as well. So I had a basic grasp of, you know, I the only thing I knew from was JavaScript. But I, I took what I knew from Java and expanded that a bit. Okay. And it was helpful. Do, do any of those skill sets translate um, within your personal art practice? Or individual? Just the research part of it. Yeah. Yeah. And the resource distribution part. I mean, that's critical as well. I just don't have any money right now. So. <laughs> That's not happening. Is that on me? Yeah. Um, yeah, so Manny, as you mentioned already that, um, you know, NTP and you have worked together um, a couple different times in the past. Um, I think I can speak for both Melanie and I. We've, I think we've always been really big fans of yours and been wanting um, to have you on the podcast for a while. Mm -hmm. And there's, yeah, as you've already mentioned, um, so many things you do. Um, and one I was, one I was kind of wanting to hear a little bit more about is I feel like the one I maybe, the aspect of your practice maybe I know the least is uh, Tabor Dark. And I was Ooh. listening um, some Tabor Dark stuff this morning. And oh my God, thank you. <laughs> yeah, well, I'd be curious to, to hear more about Tabor Dark um, and also your collabs with Tabor Dark. And then, um, this like upcoming album you're talking about with your like Afro Dominican um, influences, all that. Totally. Thank you for bringing that up. Uh, it's definitely, I kind of like that it's the part of my practice that has the least attention paid to it. Cause I can kind of do whatever I want, but mm. yeah, I've been at it for a long time. Uh, so it would be nice to get more recognition. And I appreciate you checking it out. Uh, Tabor dark. I think of it as the opposite of Tabor light. So I'm going to first explain the name. Uh, in Eastern Christian Orthodoxy, the Tabor light is the light of transfiguration on Mount Tabor. Uh, Jesus of Nazareth is engulfed in a glowing alien light and transforms into previous prophets of the past, like Elijah, uh, Moses, etc. So this is a really big uh, theological trope in the Eastern Orthodoxy. Uh, but they also believe that unbelievers who looked upon the Tabor light we're actually seeing the fires of hell. So I thought that was really wild. And uh, the Tabor Dark is the idea of the shadow that this light or hellfire emanates and the idea that there might be something over there in that shadow that's better, right? Mm. Um, so yeah, that's the name, Tabor Dark. And the project is, it's a, at base, a religious project. I think of it, I call it a production of club feasible worship music and crunchy ambient and post-classical. So these are terms that I use to describe the actual work. Um, my first couple albums were more like UK funky based. So they were drawing on UK genres. Um, the first one was in 2012, it was called The Raining. And it was kind of a, a love song to just the rain of Portland and boredom and loneliness, right? So that was, I was drawing on that because there was a big shock for me environmentally coming here from the Bronx, um, where even if you're you know, always inside, there's still lots of people that move through your house. It's just kind of a constant thing. Uh, 
Portland is really isolated. The streets are really empty a lot of the time. Just a really different kind of place. And uh, I had a hard time adapting to it. So the music was helpful for that. Uh, then I had some trap releases. I had one called Anaphora and one called R.I.P. Trap. So Anaphora is just a good trap album. I like it. And then R.I.P. Trap was kind of about a commodification of trap that was happening around 2012. Um, so that's kind of a fun album. And it also explores some of these like trap house combinations that were happening around the time. So I was kind of poking fun at stuff, but also doing it, like actually doing trap house combos and seeing if there's a way to link that back to the original genres, right? Um, more recently, I've been doing more like ambient and piano based stuff. So at Port Townsend, I did uh, a residency uh, at Fort Warden through Centrum and I was playing the piano that I had in my cabin. Uh, and so there's two piano compositions, one like poetry piece that has like a piano hinge composition under it. And then one long piano composition with 808 uh, that's kind of dedicated to my grandmother, uh, my paternal grandmother. Uh, the recent album that I'm working on is called The Sacred Factory. It's kind of an exploration of uh, the failure of articulation, right? The failure to produce, the failure to make sense, which is something that I'm really interested in. Uh, Gene Toomer has a religious play called The Sacred Factory. Gene Toomer is a mixed, uh, mixed race Black American writer. And he wrote a book uh, in the kind of Black modernist tradition called Cain in 1925 i believe it's kind of what he's most known for uh but he, yeah after that he had a difficult time producing work that was like received by critics and the public as well as kane so he just kind of at, after that point struggled a lot in terms of his artistic artistic production especially because he was doing a lot of uh mysticism and he was getting really involved with religion he was uh working with like Gordijev and stuff like this uh, this russian mysticist and then he started his own religious commune in a Quaker tradition. He was really interested in Quaker abolitionists and stuff like this. Um, so the, yeah, the sacred factory, when we think of it in the context of failure and the, the failure to produce meaning specifically, uh, for Gurdjieff, the sacred factory is the human body, right? It, it's supposed to be these different departments all in sync. So that's the kind of, the kind of industrialized metaphor that this mysticist and the gene tumor are drawing on. Uh, but I'm interested in the sacred factory as like a ruin. Like it's inherently a ruin. It's overrun by a forest or something. It's overrun by greenery. And the greenery is actually what it produces. It produces the failure to produce meaning or something. And so it's a nine track house album. Um, every song has a beat, you know? It's, I haven't released an album with all, all beat songs in a while, which is nice. I think the last one was like 2018. Um, so yeah, this is a straight up house album and each song is dedicated to a specific artist or thinker that I feel indebted to. Um, so we have people like Afro-Dominican poet, Aida Cartagena Porta Latin. Uh, she was an amazing poet of the 20th century, uh, Dominican modernist. We have people like Olivorio Mateo, uh, probably the most important uh, messianic communal thinker and political activist of the Dominican Republic. We have a song for Florina Soriano or Mama Tingo. She was a black land uh, autonomy activist for rural Afro-Dominicans. Um, we have Wilson Harris. Wilson Harris is someone I'm deeply, deeply indebted to. 
He was a Guyanese novelist and uh, critical theorist, literary theorist. And he wrote what he called quantum fiction. So, you know, different parallel universes are interacting in his work. Uh, for example, in one of his books, Palace of the Peacock, the main character dies three times in the first couple pages of the book. And it's unclear when the character comes back, if he's from a different universe or if he came back in this one or if some combination of that. So it, it's this kind of thing. And the, he's demanding that language can or cannot. I mean, it can fail, too, but he wants it to measure up to reality and how abstract reality is and how unfinished history is. Right. Mm -hmm. So he spent 20 years in the Guyanese interior, uh, just vast jungles. Uh, he was a land surveyor and it changed him. I mean, the, he said that the 20 years changed him because he was so remote and alone and he saw living things in the forest, like the trees themselves spoke to him about his own ancestors. Right. Mm -hmm. And spoke to him about how they themselves were actually connected to him through different ancestors. Right. If you go back far enough. Uh, so there's this sense of unfinishedness. Like he talks about quantum fiction as a way to disrupt the colonial linearity of time and to show that this fake colonial seal on time, it's fake, right? History is still happening and we feel it in our bodies, right? And he wants language to kind of measure up to that as opposed to erase it. Which I, I think that realist language does that. It does erase a lot of that, um, the expectation of narrative, you know, beginning, middle, end, narrative arc, a framing that makes sense for the art, all of these kinds of things. Mm -hmm. um, we're going to pull back a little bit. Um, we noticed that you started a Patreon. I did. What prompted that? And also, why'd it take so long for you to start a Patreon? <laughs> I just need money right now. <laughs> if people are willing to give me money for production, that's a good that's a good thing, I guess. Yeah, I've 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 been on your Patreon a few times, and I'm just like astounded at like your generosity and what you're offering up. Um, we're definitely planning on becoming Patreons very, very soon. Well, thank but you. like, yeah, you're you're offering up a lot of content. Um, it's amazing um, and exciting. And I mean, how do you feel about this? Very like, I mean, Patreon. The idea of a Patreon, the subscription surf, uh, service, is it is like a very like on the nose commodification of work, right? So, like, how do you feel about, like, doing that and what that means for your practice? I've been having fun approaching it as, like, alternative ways of mediating or presenting in a different medium mm -hmm. things that I'm already doing for something else. So, for example, I'm doing a sound composition thing with one of my friends in Norway. It's a whole different conversation, but um, it involves my writing. Uh, and so I had to record some audio for it. And so for Patreon, I just decided to record a video as well. So it's, it's just this way of like, hey, I'm already doing this thing. I might as well uh, try to build on it and give it to these folks that have, have pledged, right? Yeah. And most of the stuff is available at just a dollar a month. Like I think even that is just a good place to start for now. Yeah. And I'm definitely gonna thin it out as time goes on, but I already have such a big 
like a, a backlog of stuff and stuff coming forward in the next couple months that it's just already in the works or already done that I might as well have this base to start with and have stuff that any, anyone can access if they're interested. And then like I've already had a couple people change their donation levels. Right? That's oh, a good wow. thing. Yeah. Um, yeah. So yeah, I think I, I posted about this on Instagram recently. I think today, like I really like the idea of just not producing for the public except a couple specific things and just producing this kind of stuff for my Patreon. Like again, this alternative media mediation approach that I'm already doing this stuff. So I might as well find a different way to put it out there for a, a select audience. Mm -hmm. Also the interface fucking sucks. Like I really don't, oh sorry, <laughs> I just curls. <laughs> no, no, no. Um, curls on here? Is that good? Yeah, it's, hey. it's explicit. Okay. We, we cuss all the time. Um, <laughs> Melanie cusses a lot more than I do. <laughs> I didn't know we were counting, Max. Okay. Um, <laughs> Are you like, are you secretly FCC? Is that what this is? <laughs> no, no, no. Patreon is on some bullshit and every year they try to pull some new shit. Like this year they're trying, they're taxing people now. So, I saw that. I'm st I still don't understand that. It's bullshit. Um, and what usually happens is there's a backlash and then the people who use Patreon, cuss them out, and they they back down after a couple of months. So I'm hoping that'll happen. Okay. Um, but yeah. Yeah. I mean, what? So they want the customers to pay taxes, but they're also already paying taxes. So what is that money just going to them? Yeah, pretty much, is my guess. Okay. Sweet. Yeah. Yeah. What the? Yeah. Um, yeah, then um, on your, the, the album you are talking about earlier, the Sacred Factory is also, or will be also available through your Patreon? It is already. Uh, I need to change a little bit. I'm, I feel like I'm pulling a Kanye, but I need to change some stuff. But patrons can hear the work in progress version, yeah. And it's coming out at some point in this month as part of the residency, so that's something that the public will have access to. Cool. And then um, I was looking at your uh, all your different tiers, and then I saw, uh, I think, maybe for like the last two, or just like the highest one, that... Um, people like uh lease your artwork and i really like the idea that they they only own it for as long as they're your patreon but then they they can keep the materials that the artwork was made out of but have to return uh their certificate yeah, <laughs> yeah i was really into so, that. so a big part of that is uh kind of punning on cameron roland he has an artwork that's a lease like he allows certain of his works uh to be leased not ever bought and the lease itself is a secondary artwork. It's kind of attached to whatever you're buying. Or you can just buy the lease itself. But uh, So yeah, I'm drawing that from him. But I'm also, with the object aspect of it, it's like if you get a sculpture, no one's at that tier, of course, yet, but if anyone ends up there and gets a sculpture, you can keep the thing itself. But, the, you know, I'll give you a certificate, but you have to give that back when you stop pledging. Uh, you, but you can, the materials, you can circulate that however you want. You know, you bought that, that's yours. But the concept, it has to remain mine. <laughs> Which, of course, I mean, that's impossible, but I, I like the idea of controlling the circulation somehow. I mean, uh, and that, again, goes back to this whole thing of, like, this constant navigation of what I'm putting out into the public and how I do that, how I frame it. Um, to build on that, I, I, I can only assume that one is never really happy with how their work is received. Um for obvious reasons, but do you feel like there is, like, an exponential flattening of your work um, by the time that it reaches, like, 
other audiences or other eyes? Are you like, are you kind of like resigned or content with how your work is perceived at the moment? Great question. Um, I'm resigned to it. Yeah. I mean, when you put stuff out into the public, that's it. I mean, whatever people react to it with, that's it. So I'm resigned to that for sure. Mm -hmm. Um, do definitely notice a racial distinction in terms of the rigor with which the work is approached. Like obviously aspects of it, only black people can really engage with rigorously. So when I'm putting stuff out into the public, I try to keep those conversations, uh, you know, available for mixed company rather than get into stuff that might be black only. Yeah. I think once it reaches a mixed or specifically a white audience, it is very flat. Uh, there's the dimension of it where the people are kind of just like, well, what's the point? Like what's the final, what I take away from this. And it's like, we, first of all, you should already know what to be doing. Like you shouldn't have to read some dense theoretical essay that I wrote for fun, super high for, for, for a check on Adderall and also super high. You shouldn't have to read that to, to know, to give your resources away. Like mm -hmm. that's obvious already. So yeah. the choice to engage that kind of content, cause it isn't for everyone. It is with the critical theory stuff that I write. It is dense. I get that it's not for everybody, but there's a certain social capital around that for non-black people. So they, they kind of try to engage it um, mm -hmm. in their specious or superficial ways, you know, to be, to have uh, proximity to it or something. Yeah. Um, that social capital that's ascribed to like a certain kind of writing, a certain kind of presentation. Um, you, I mean, do you, you like, you're obviously aware of that social capital. Is that something that you consider a tool in your arsenal or is that just a byproduct? It has to be both. I mean, it's a tool that I have access to because of privilege and mm -hmm. educational privilege. And, right. Um, choosing to code switch in certain contexts or something like that. And also just being very light skinned and stuff like this. I mean, these are all, none of this is separate in my mind. I think of mm -hmm. it as all connected. Yeah. There are times when, I mean, I know the New York times, they kind of did this little video that incorporated a, a not consensual citation of my work. So that's one instance of where oh. I was like, oh man, this shit sucks. Like the social capital aspect of it. Because the lady emailed me, uh, whoever makes the, this video, and was like, I, you know, I'm going to cite your essay. Uh, can you give me like a short clip about it or something? And I was like, I think you should ask a darker skinned person to talk about this. I don't think you should cite me at all. Uh, and I gave, I literally gave a list of people, uh, even people that took the, even people that took my own essay and put it in simpler terms, right? People that, because not everyone wants to fuck with this dense theory shit. Mm-hmm. And so she just ignored that and still cited me. And I was like, all right, like, how, how am I supposed to stop this? Like, what am I supposed to do? Go and find you, like, and have a conversation with you? Like, how does this, I don't want to do that labor. Yeah. But then it's like, I've already done, I've already laid it out for you. Like, go and talk to these people and have them be in your New York Times thing. That's fine. I don't want to be in it. I told you I don't want to be in it. Like, <laughs> so, yeah. Wow. I'm going to take a moment here to uh, remind everyone that the New York Times is straight trash and they've always Absolutely. been trash. I hate them. And that's a non-biased opinion. Um, <laughs> but, 
pointing at me because well, I'm supposed to ask do your own research into how the New York Times is just a you know, government sanctioned mouthpiece. That's all out there. They, they even publish it themselves sometimes. So. Hell, you can go to their Wikipedia page and find out how they're funded, and that'll tell you everything you need to know. But That's my thing. It's like all of this stuff, it's like, just go look it up. Like, I don't need to tell you that Peggy Guggenheim worked with the CIA. Just go look it up. Right? <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay, let's talk about homeschool. Sure. So, Homeschool is the free pop-up art school that you run with Victoria Ann Reese. Um, it's just hit its five-year milestone, which is a pretty big deal. Uh, yeah. Can you talk a little bit about how Homeschool started um, and where you think it's headed? And, like, what has changed since its, its inception, um, if anything? So, yeah... Um... Victoria is from Boring, Oregon, and she went to NYU to get her master's in international education. While she was out there, she uh, spent, I think, two or three years, maybe even longer, as a student of an alternative arts educational project out there called Bruce High Quality Foundation University. Uh, the project is not existing anymore. It's done now, unfortunately. But No, fortunately, actually, because they had a whole thing with their leader who was an alleged abuser in this, this whole situation. They, they covered that up for a bit, so I'm glad that they're done. Um, but the reason that it was unfortunate for Victoria is that when she came back, she found out that they didn't have any distance learning opportunities because uh, they had some sort of like New York-centric kind of thing. They were all Cooper Union grads, and I guess the New York art scene, is it is very closed in my experience, and so they kind of reiterated that. Uh, and so I, I just, you know, talked about it with Victoria and was like, well, we can just start our own thing and figure out what that looks like. I, we had this conversation maybe like September 2015. Mm -hmm. No, maybe like August 2015. Okay. And then uh, literally like a month later, we applied for the precipice, um, which we got for the 2016, uh, the first year of curriculum. And the way it worked the first year was just really too intense. Like we were doing stuff every Sunday, pretty much. Wow. So in-person events with whoever would host us, um, majority women and non-binary, majority black. Um, not by intention. I mean, I just curate my friends for that most of the time because it is a very, it's like a pittance that we had to offer. We had to offer $75 to people the first year. And now we offer 150 because we decided to do monthly events instead mm -hmm. of weekly. So that was a big thing. 2016 was a burnout year for us. We were just like, it was. it's good because now we have that backlog and everything's on homeschoolpdx.tumblr.com, you know, all, all the curricular years. And so there's a nice backlog. And 2016 specifically was like the, the year of developing that robust archive, for better or worse. But after that, yeah, we decided to do one a month. Uh, which allowed us to pay people more. And then, so we got the RAC grant the second year, the project grant from the Regional Arts and Culture Council. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah, so that year we had um, 5,000. The first year Precipice gave us 3,800. So we had more money and we decided to start bringing more people out to Portland. So that became a nice part of it for me, uh, for Victoria whenever she was in town. Because again, she lives in Boring. Yeah. But yeah, so things like going to Forest Park, just going to different restaurants and stuff, and just kind of like trying as best to shield people from how evil and white Portland is, obviously, but still like the landscape and stuff and the food and all this other 
quality of life for the cost kind of stuff that for me is part of the reason I'm still here, right? Yeah. Um, so yeah, I really enjoyed that part of homeschool, uh, flying people out and just showing them the city and learning about it because I mean I don't I don't go out too much in Portland like that, but uh, yeah, homeschool. Uh, the idea of creating a welcoming space for critical engagement with contemporary art. That's kind of the grant language, right? Mm-hmm. But the, obviously the normal way to put that is just fuck art. Like that's really what it is. It's a space for people that are makers, are thinkers. We still do this creative stuff, but the art industry and the education of art and all this stuff, the marketization, it's, it's failed us for a variety of reasons, right? Mm-hmm. And so there needs to be space for that kind of engagement. Because at the end of the day, art is still all volunteer. Like, we're all still choosing to be in this very obscure little niche, right? Yeah. Uh, And I have my reasons for doing it. Other people have their reasons. But we're all choosing to still do that. And there needs to be space for me choosing to do that while still honoring this idea of fuck art. Because when the public says a five-year-old could do it, first of all, a five-year-old couldn't get that much student debt. So that's a different conversation. (laughs) But... Five-year-old could still make. Yes. And excellent art, excellent creative processes, excellent thinking. It doesn't come from art education or the validation of the market. It comes from this specific rigorous, poetic, or makerly process, right? This way of engaging reality. Mm -hmm. So that's what homeschool is interested in. And uh, we, we curate exhibitions, artist talks, performances... Uh, one or two panels um, we've done some publications we've done a cassette as well as we did E. Jane's chapbook Deluxe Dreams mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah it's a fun project I think of it as genre non-conforming edutainment mm-hmm. so there's there's this aspect of entertaining or pleasure or something like that um, yeah it's a fun project It's for me I just see it as like learning in public and inviting people to be part of that process as well because I was educated in linguistics at Reed College so I had not as much exposure to like you know the weirdnesses of contemporary art that kind of came more from my own independent exploration yeah and like going to events as a neophyte and you know this did start in New York but New York is a very different landscape and there's not as much uh, social capital around certain kinds of ways of of thinking and making in New York as there are out here. Things like social practice are really big, yeah. project spaces, uh, projects in vernacular sites and stuff like this, and marginal sites like garages and stuff like this. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, homeschool is fun. Um, yeah, I've um, been been into the stuff that homeschool has been doing. I remember, um, I think one of the first ones I went to was, yeah, like at a house in Northeast, you know, people just like sitting on a couch for a conversation. Um, and then, yeah, I love that, like, all of your um, content over the years is, like, available on a Tumblr. I keep meaning to, like, I was like, oh, yeah, one day I'm going to, like, sit down and just, like, go through all this because there's so many uh, conversations and artists that came through that uh, I wasn't able to, like, attend, but, like, I want to still hear those conversations. And then when I think of homeschool, like the artists and the people that you bring um, either like stream or like actually bring to Portland, like I feel like if it wasn't for homeschool, some of these people like, would have never like come to Portland, Portland people would have never been exposed to them. Like I feel like I personally would have been exposed to like a lot of these people that are like doing amazing 
like amazing work like doing badass shit and it's just like it's really like yeah it's just really like homeschool is just really doing this thing in portland that like no other spaces and like bringing this art and these like people and this conversations to portland that like wouldn't exist and it's really like um yeah it really shows i think how uh crucial homeschool has been in portland especially recently the last few years and um yeah also like too yeah some of these artists i feel like i'll care about in homeschool and then it seems like later they seem to like be even more um known or like widespread it seems like you like are really good about like having your ear to um to all the things like you're super plugged in yeah i mean i think in terms of curation i i'm really privileged to have some friends that are really brilliant and in my mind you guys are included so cheers to that thank you Um, and it's just nice it's it's a and i think a lot of people have this they just don't realize that like how creatively brilliant the people around them are Mm -hmm. Uh, and if they're not maybe you can change that but (laughs) i i really like that uh people are willing to take this little money and you know, if they get flown out, that's also really nice. But not everyone gets to be, gets to do that because of scheduling and, and stuff like that. But people are really generous to take that money. It was seventy five uh, the first year, and then it was one fifty after that. Or I think it was seventy five the first two years. I'll double check. But uh, people are really generous to take that and and present their work, and and it's really it's been an amazing experience. I do. I would if I had to critique it, I would say that there is in homeschools curation, uh, a lot of people that are, you know, part of the coastal elite cities, like LA and New York. Mm. So, and that wasn't, I didn't really think about that until recently. So I did try to change that a bit, like in uh, 2019 year, when we were in residency at Yale Union, I had, for example, Johan Mihail, and they're a Dominican artist uh, from uh, Santo Domingo, currently living in Santiago, Chile. And so I just tried to switch that up. And in the future, I'm going to try and have as many people that are not in these coastal elite cities as possible. But I still am just committed to also like showcasing my friends in that context. And a lot of them live in those places. So I'm from one of those places. I'm from New York. Mm-hmm. So the predominance of those cities in the art landscape is, a, is definitely a problem and needs to be talked about. Um, yeah. And I'm hoping to, in the future, have yeah, more international focus and uh, more non-American Black people, more mm. Indigenous people. Mm. How how has uh, future homeschool programming been affected by COVID? Yeah, um, it's been more touch and go. Yeah. So we haven't been adhering to any kind of monthly, periodic, or scheduled context. Mm-hmm. It's been more just like, if someone's interested, they'll shoot me a DM, or I'll shoot them a DM, and we can try to schedule it, and then that works out. Um, at the beginning of the year, we had a couple of in-person events. We had Legacy Russell yes. at Ori, and we had Che Gossett. Actually, Che Gossett was at Ori as well. Mm-hmm. And um, so, you know, we can, we can revel in those final moments of meat space but uh that's not to too shabby a final moment if i must say so <laughs> it's pretty good Sorry? that's not too shabby a final moment <laughs> <laughs> totally yeah they're, they're brilliant yeah. but uh yeah to us and to me it's it's exciting to be digital only again i mean that's how it all started so 
Um, and it was always touch and go. Things were always pretty hectic in the first year, just things being figured out like a couple of days in advance and all this kind of stuff. Yeah. So, um, yeah, it's been more touch and go. Like there's no set schedule. Um, there's no like specific list that I have for this year's curriculum or next year's. Mm. Some of that is not good though. I mean, I don't have a specific, uh, funding body in mind for the 2021 curriculum, for example. So some of my admin work in homeschool has been about trying to find that. Mm-hmm. Um, hopefully, I don't know, I don't know what precipice is going to look like, but hopefully I can apply to a rack grant or something like this, but yeah. 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 Then, um, something I've been thinking about recently, um, but then I guess about, <clears throat> um, yeah, people doing like DIY art projects, uh, natural projects, homeschool, um, it's, it's just like, I've been, yeah, it's just been like amazing the amount of um, stuff like homeschool is able to do, the, the impact homeschools had, like the content it's brought to Portland. And then I think about like art institutions that have like money and that have infrastructure and like the amount of shit they do <laughs> versus like the amount of shit that like, um, yeah, like DIY organizations do organizations that like are not getting paid for like a full-time job um kind of thing it's just really it's just really wild um the the juxtaposition yeah well they're not lucky to have someone like victoria i get Mm. get to have victoria like help me out with stuff whenever i need that yeah she's been instrumental in a lot of different contexts Um, like when yeah i do a lot of the curation but she does a lot of the like like you know she'll give me rides to places she'll help with picking stuff up she'll like yeah, she's always there if I if I need anything. Uh, she's really critical in terms of getting the project off the ground. Because I don't know how to drive. Uh, I'm not as good with those kinds of logistics of like, oh, we have to pick up the speakers from this place and the snacks from this place and the alcohol from this place. And oh, this person needs a ride from the airport. And so it's really important to be able to collaborate with her on that part of the project. Yeah. And, uh, She's also curated a couple of things and uh, contributed to the curation of a couple of things. So it's really good to also have her in that context. Yeah. Uh, one of my favorite things that she did was a class in 2016 called Mom Art. So she thought of Mom Art as kind of like the opposite of Pop Art, right? If Pop Art is like Warhol's factory and the production and stuff, then Mom Art is like the domestic and reproduction and stuff. Yeah. Uh, and so that class was really cool. It was It was all in houses and it was all about care and the relation between care and making and what the domestic means and like the problematic ties between uh domesticity and specific sets of genitalia right and like this the need to shift in terms of like uh, splitting domestic labor and people of all genders doing equal domestic labor Mm -hmm. as opposed to being um having feminized people be oppressed by that specifically so yeah that was a really great class Yeah, and as like as someone who um, has obviously done a lot of collaborations, some of them amazing um, with Max, and then some not so amazing. It is a rarity to find someone who you just work with so well that you're able to build this thing. So, yeah, that's that's always just an amazing blessing. So, yeah. So, I mean, she could still fuck up. We're not going to, I'm not going to say it has been, it's been great, but I still believe in the impossibility of that kind of thing in general. 
Oh, really? Absolutely, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Homeschool is just one specific thing where I'm okay collaborating that openly. Like, in general, I, my process is not as open or collaborative. Okay. So maybe I can actually return to Maxie's question, some Tamper Dark collaborations. Uh, one that was really fun, uh, when Scratch were out here, um, because we flew EJ out for their book release, uh, mm-hmm. and Chukwuma had a couple of shows with them as well, because uh, they do a project called Scratch. Because uh, they have individual music projects, Chukwuma is Laud Knows, and EJ is Misa, and together they're Scratch. So they have a I mean, large body of work. And uh, one of my friends, Lauren, uh, has access to like a jam space in Southeast Portland. It's called uh, Noise Box. Mm. And so Scratch was interested in, in being in there. And so we all got in there. I played piano and drums. They worked in electronics. Misa worked in voice. And Lauren worked in um, this kind of like uh, recapitulation process. Like she takes whatever sound is generated in the room and converts it into this like machine that she has. And the machine like produces an output based on the input. I don't really understand it, but it, it sounds good. So yeah, we released a 30 minute uh, improvisation. We recorded it and then Chup Wuma kind of reorganized and mixed it. And then Misa tweaked it a bit and then uh, we released it. And I've collaborated with Lauren as well. So last month we released uh, two long form ambient rhythmic compositions. So these are also recorded in, in the same space. Uh, Lauren mixed those and then arranged them a bit and then I rearranged them. Yeah, so Tabor Dark is a good space to collaborate to because it's just like the production of sound is super abstract, but it's also super embodied. So you don't need to frame it, you just start playing. Like you're there and the instrument's there and you just play. So with the residency, I'm really excited to have this piano and I'm working on a piano album as well. Mm. But it's been slower going than the Sacred Factory, which is like 70% done, so yeah. Yeah, you kind of just mentioned it, but um, yeah, can you talk a little bit about what you're working on um, during your Black Abbey uh, residency? Yeah, one second, let me finish rolling this book up. I've been trying really hard to not make any sounds. So. <laughs> I'm, I'm sorry, Matt. <laughs> I don't want to make you feel self-conscious about it. <laughs> <laughs> Too late, Melanie. <laughs> okay to feel self-conscious. That might be good for you. <laughs> yeah, but... um. So, yeah, so the Alberta Abbey uh, is generously offered by NTP and BAEP. Uh, Black Ecology takes place. And y'all are generously offering it at a reduced rental rate. And the room that I'm renting has a piano. So I'm playing a lot of piano, recording it. I'm also not recording things. Like, I'm working on some of the melodies on um, the Sacred Factory, which is almost done. So. The process of finishing it is going by a lot quicker because I have that piano, which is good. Um, but yeah, piano is a good instrument. You get to bang on it. All the all the keys are right there. You know, it's missing vibrato, which is kind of weird. But uh, yeah, piano has this kind of like geometric quality that I like. So um, I like to like sit at it, play it, draw while I'm sitting at the bench, uh, play like the not keys of the piano, like the body of the piano open it up so right now like i've prepared it a bit i've opened it up and put like 
spoons and like plastic bags and stuff in it. So when you hit the keys, it resonates differently and it creates these more jangly sounds. Wow. Uh, at the residency, I'm also working on uh, two books. So I finished a manuscript of prose that I sent off to this designer, uh, this white woman who's volunteered to design it. So shouts out to Aurora. Uh, and then I'm working with Sharita as well on a poetry book, uh, my third poetry book, hopefully. Um, and so that book, I'm still kind of figuring it out, but it is going to have some of these acemic themes. Uh, it's going to have like textual poetry. Uh, it's going to have some concrete poetry. Concrete poetry is when like you rearrange the letters on the page. Uh, so some people make specific shapes. Some people kind of make um, more conceptual poems, right? So one kind of mediocre one that's more well known because uh, the guy got sued for it or something like this. Uh, it's a poem called Light, and it's just the word L-I-G-H-G-H-T. So the second G-H is like the weight of light mm. or something like that. And uh, the artist got 500 bucks for it from like an NEA grant. And some, some Republican senator tried to like sue him. <laughs> uh, so yeah, I, I like to use text as a material, like a sculptural material in that way. Um, I, I've done it differently. Like at first, I used to use my own text and merge it with found text. Mm -hmm. So there was a kind of assemblage process sculpturally. But now uh, I'm writing a lot more from scratch. And I'm writing a lot more with like religious themes specifically. I'm returning to the origin of my practice. I was really bored in church when I was like nine or 10. And I would just write on the backs of handouts, uh, draw and write and just scribble things. Um, and so that's, I'm really kind of returning to that moment of my practice and thinking through like um, this long period in my life where I felt like I was an atheist. Uh, and, and gladly that's changed uh, in the past couple of years. And I, I do feel a higher presence and that's nice. Um, yeah, so that's some of the stuff I'm doing at the residency, the music and the manuscripts, uh, the acemic drawing, or I call it writing, acemic writing, but you know, it looks like drawings, I guess. Um, yeah, and just chilling. I mean, it's, it's nice to just sit in that room. Now, the acemic writings that you're working on, um, what substrate or surface are you using for those? Just out of curiosity. I'm using a Muji notebook and a Muji pen. Okay. So I, I really like Muji. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> it just feels nice. The pages are soft. It also feels like, and it is extremely affordable in terms of high quality, like writing utensils. Okay. We are not so sponsored I, by every Muji. Every time I pass through JFK, I go to the Muji store. <laughs> <laughs> Um, yeah, we're not sponsored by Muji, but if Muji happens, <laughs> should so happen to listen and hear this, you can send some shit our way. That's cool, too. Please. <laughs> um, so our final question is, are you experiencing, experiencing any byproducts, good or bad, of the white guilt boon? Well, I've got some patrons. I think that's pretty cool. Yeah, well, that is pretty cool. Yeah. Um, I did get a very vague offer from UO 
for an almost debt-free MFA. What? I'm, I'm kind of drilling down into what the almost part means, because I have thousands, tens of thousands of dollars in debt from Reed, so I'm really not interested in almost debt-free UO degree. That sounds like a weird uh, lingo for some weird shit. Yeah. I mean, I feel like for what you're bringing to the table, someone should just give you a free ride. Honestly. That'd be cool. I mean, you would only make their campus look good. <laughs> like, right, yeah. Um, I mean, yeah, because, again, I was educated in linguistics, so I know what a track in linguistics looks like, right? Like, if I were to continue in linguistics, I wouldn't get MA or MFA. I mean, I'd have to, but I would just get a PhD track situation going on in that context. Mm-hmm. But that doesn't... I don't know if I would do that in the context of art. Like, I'm happy to take a free ride MFA if that comes up almost debt-free is i don't know what that means so we'll figure that out yeah. i'll keep you guys posted but uh okay <laughs> <laughs> like i guess yeah i would have to live in eugene and pay rent in eugene right like, i don't think oh. i'd be able to live on campus for example like that's an undergrad thing well i i think the rules have changed now haven't they for that sort of thing true very true good point so i think now is an a good moment to make the most outrageous demands you could possibly think of just hit people in their soft underbelly because I think that moment is going to pass by very quickly very soon yeah because I don't want an MFA I mean I would just rather teach there right like, <laughs> that's fair yeah no disrespect to people that have MFAs like that's fine but... oh no disrespect taken <laughs> sorry no it's no we know we already know (laughs) so um i mean at this point what would an mfa give you that you haven't already gotten and then some you would have to tell me because i honestly don't really know i mean i don't know either that's why i'm asking you (laughs) are you gonna get a phd is that the track no mfa is the terminal degree in the art and in the art field i mean There are art PhDs, but only people who just want to stay in school go after those. Okay, okay. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, I can tell you... Well, Max Max says he got an MFA um, to find the secret... Um, <laughs> what was it? What, what did you say? Yeah, I wanted to find the secret, and I found it out. What is it? <laughs> it was student debt that's the secret yeah absolutely like the, I guess I with the five year olds like <laughs> that's the only reason we don't see kids in museums I was like oh so this is gonna make me paint better <laughs> yes <laughs> the struggle <laughs> um what art are you getting into these days like that's not your art <laughs> Yeah, I've been reading a lot more lately, which I'm really grateful for, because I, I have times where I cannot read, and it's really difficult. Mm. Um, I've been reading uh, Suleiman Bashir Dian, so he's a West African thinker, uh, and he writes a lot about logic and numbers and binary, like binary code, and the kind of African roots of binary code. Uh all right, so for context, I put this long video out called Alternative History of Abstraction. Uh, you should go watch it. It's free. It's two hours long. And it proposes that uh, abstraction does not have a European modernist origin as a colonial myth. And abstraction is 
already always already black and brown socially and spiritually functional and non-autonomous i.e embedded into society and social life and so this video traces some examples and philosophical implications of the alternative history of abstraction um, one of the lineages that's discussed in that video uh, cited by Ron Eglash is the lineage from Bamano divination of the Bamano people in Africa uh, to Hugo Santaglia's uh, alchemy journals to Cantor's theorems to John von Neumann's codification of binary so there's a whole lineage from Bamana divination to digital circuits, which means, as Aglash says, that every digital circuit in the world is African, right? And we this is kind of doubled in the context of neocolonialism, because this stuff is literally mined by enslaved African children. The materials that make our phones are mined from there and then sent to suicidal East Asian factory workers that put the phones together and then send them to us. So there's this wretched cycle that goes on, right? And of course, Ron Aglash, white mathematician, he doesn't really talk about the violence of digitality very much, but that's something that I'm really interested in my work. And so Dion, this, this thinker, Suleiman Bashir Dion, um, he's thinking a lot about this and he's thinking, but he puts it in this really amazing context of like the magic of the scribes ink and uh, African approaches to writing, right? So a lot of colonial, uh, violence has existed around the idea that Africans never wrote. That's completely false. And so there's a lot, a lot of scholarship in Dion's work around that. Um, and so the book specifically that I'm uh, reading and appreciating and loving in relation to that video and just general research recently is a book called African Art as Philosophy. So it's a book where he's kind of reading Henri Bergson, the white philosopher in a kind of post-colonial way. Uh, Bergson wrote a lot about time and the nonlinearity of time. And so Dion's picking up on that in a decolonial way and uses it to talk about how in the African and Afro-diaspora context, making is philosophical. It's a way of thinking and it's a way of doing. And those things are never separate. So I really love that book. Yeah. But in terms of visual art, uh, I'm into this uh, young artist, Cyberdoula, on Instagram. Their work is really cool. Uh, so they work, I mean, this concept of Cyberdoula, just from the, the get-go, is really interesting. Okay. But they work a lot around technology. And uh, so this idea of cannibalizing cyberspace uh, in something that they recently posted has been really generative for me. Um, so yeah, check them out. Okay. Uh, Cyberdoula, I believe her name's Olivia. All right, we'll post a link in the show notes. Cool. Who else? Yeah, I mean, visual art for me, as, as some people maybe have picked up on, I'm not that into like visuality. Like I, I find a lot of tyranny in that relation to visual currency. Okay, I would like to hear more about that. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, I'm obviously speaking from a great position of privilege, like a vast position of privilege in terms of like uh, being super light skinned and stuff, right? Mm -hmm. But. There's, when I when I speak, for example, there's this level of authority that people confer based on my appearance or social capital, mm -hmm. right? It ties into the linguistic stuff that we were talking about before, but a dark-skinned person that talks the way I do maybe wouldn't be taken as seriously. That definitely wouldn't be happening for them, right? So uh, that has to be part of that conversation, right? 
So like the citational work that I do, uh, when I'm putting stuff out into the public, I do try to cite uh, as many dark-skinned thinkers as I can, because I think that's really important. Like when I'm citing this idea of abstraction being already, always already black, we have to center dark-skinned people, especially feminized dark-skinned people when we do that work, and kind of recover these lost archives. Oh, this is actually a great thing to plug. Um, the Black Feminist Summer School starts today, I believe. Oh, Black Feminist Sorry. Kitchen? Yeah, Black Feminist Summer School is a program of the Black Feminist Kitchen. Mm-hmm. Um, I think Ebony Oldham currently directs it. Yes. And so they're doing a lot of amazing work, and it's, it's all available out there. And uh, So I made a video for this program, uh, the Black Feminist Summer School, and it's about the Afro-Dominican musician Enerolisa Nunez. And so I really, really enjoyed making this video. And Enerolisa is someone that I've listened to for a long time. And she, she definitely captures the hearts of uh, Afro-Dominican people who are trying to recover our culture, specifically our religious African culture, whether it's in a Catholic or African uh, context. That distinction doesn't even make sense. That's a different conversation. But um, So she works in this genre called Salve Criolla, uh, salve because it's based on Catholic liturgy, like the Salve Regina, uh, choral polyphony, that's the basis of that music. But the criolla, the creole part of it is the drums, mm-hmm. right? So I made this, it's about 50 minutes long and it features contextualization around Enero Lisa and her practice as uh, what Christina Sharp calls wake work, working in the wake, right? Finding resonance between contemporary manifestations of oppression and the hold of the slave ship, right? And always working to defend the dead and center dark-skinned, forced feminized people uh, and thinking through what Spillers calls uh, the ungendering of the hold, right? Mm-hmm. And, and the enclosure of the black womb through particecator ventrum and the reproduction of enslavement in that context. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah, Enero Lisa, um, she, she got her music stolen uh, by a mixed-race Dominican musician called Quinito Mendes. And so that video describes his theft and her response through self-mythologizing, right? She, you know, so Salve Criolla is sung to Lua. Lua are African deities or indigenous deities as well. There are different divisions. And they were syncretized with Catholic saints uh, during the Middle Passage because African religion was made illegal. So people continue to practice in secret through this kind of Catholic European drag. And uh, so, and Elisa sings to those laws, right? They come from the Congo Angola region, from the kingdom of Dahomey in Benin, from the Volta region of Ghana, from the Oyo kingdom or the Yoruba people of Nigeria, uh, from the Taino indigenous people, uh, they call the deities Zemis, right? So the Lua, uh, we can kind of think of them as like, the Dominican and Haitian counterparts to Afro-Cuban Orisha, right? Which is, it's drawn more from the, the Congo, Angola region and the Yoruban people of the Oyo kingdom. Um, but it's the same kind of ancestral veneration practice. It's, it's rooted in West African theology uh, and Bakungo cosmograms and these kinds of things. Mm-hmm. And so, and Orisa responds to the theft by actually putting herself in a song. So I, I did a lot of work around translating the lyrics of a couple of different songs by her. Uh, and then the one that I focus on at the end, she puts herself into the context, right? In the same context as the Loi, fully aware of her kind of high stature in the living uh, as a future ancestor. Like she is revered by 
regular Afro-Dominican rural descent people, people that, uh, for those who aren't aware, uh, the Dominican dictator installed by the U.S. Marines, Rafael Trujillo, uh, from 1930 to 1961, uh, had a terror campaign against Haitians, Haitian heritage Dominicans, and Afro-Dominicans, particularly people of dark skin, uh, murdering and maiming them, uh, reinscribing the illegality of African religion, including Afro-Catholic religious drumming. Uh, so even being Catholic wasn't enough, right? So Trujillo's campaign of terror uh, led to a lot of people moving to the cities to survive. The rural became this kind of inescapable surveillance space because he, this is so fucked up, but he literally went to different villages and stuff and enacted prima noctis. Mm -hmm. So he was the king. He renamed the mountains, the capital, everything. He renamed it Trujillo. Santo Domingo became Ciudad Trujillo, right? So he, yeah, he would go to the villages and just fuck whatever daughter he wanted, pretty much. Like it was straight up uh, neo-colonial rape installed by the U.S. Marines. So it was a campaign of terror and lots of people lost their culture. So a lot of modern Dominican, Afro-Dominican activity is around recovering that. Uh, my issue with a lot of that is that there's a refusal to engage anti-Haitianism and our own complicity in that. So that has to be part of the conversation as well. Um, and seeing the unity, because he was going against Haitians, he was going against Haitian heritage Dominicans, he was going against Afro-Dominicans, specifically people of darker skin. So it's, uh, yeah, there's a lot of work around recovery, and Eneolisa specifically uh, is one of these kind of grand figures. Uh, but the way that she's received is really flattened in a lot of contexts. And I hope that this video, when it comes out, um, can kind of help to, to change some of that perspective I critique the concept of folk or roots music as a way of de-Africanizing and secularizing uh, this cultural production. So yeah, uh, that's going to be available as part of the programming of the Black Feminist Summer School. Wow. Okay. That sounds really like amazing. Um, and I am I'm pretty excited about the Black Feminist Summer School as well. So. Well, oh my God! Yeah. We'll, we'll also include a link to, to, to that program in the show notes for anyone who's interested in participating in that. Um, so right about now, uh, we're going to prepare to close out um, our conversation. But before we go, um, I'm going to take it to the more ignorant place um, <laughs> and uh, do uh, see my Sealy's Glass of Water segment which is a special shout out for the folks who are doing the most with not even the least. Oh, Mr. Talking Trash About Shug. Folks don't like nobody being too proud or too free. So today, originally, I was going to have the bartender send a special glass to Terry Crews, but I thought about it and heard more about what he said in context with some of the disturbing things that he said in the past, and I've decided that, above all, what Terry Crews needs is love, patience, and way more black friends so that he can extricate himself from the blinding ignorance of white proximity. So instead, today my glass goes out to all you kumbaya, peace-loving, let's just wait and hope for the best idiots that stay deflecting, stay turning the other cheek, stay saying horrifically violent shit in service of playing devil's advocate. 
Spoiler alert, that position is full up, and I don't think the devil needs your help in that department. Every single day and multiple times a day during moments like these, some brilliant soul stares into the abyss of whatever dystopia we happen to be living in at that moment as black folks and says stupid crap like, well, actually, and black-on-black violence and love is the answer, proving that they have little to no understanding of statistics, American history, human psychology, or basic socioeconomics. I want all of y'all to take a hard, long look in the mirror and shut the fuck up and move the hell out of the way while grown folks are talking. Respectfully. We are tired and we have a long road ahead of us, and we simply do not have time for your posturing and bullshit. We cannot. Not anymore. Good luck on your journey, or whatever, but please stand down. And that's it for our Sealy's Glass of Water. Uh, we're going to end it on parting words. Max, what are your parting words? Um, yeah, thank you. Thank you, Melanie. Um, thank you, Manny, for being our guest. Um, thank you for uh, what you do for art and for Portland. Thank you for your art and your research for sharing it. Um, I feel like there's a bunch of other things. Uh, yeah, the last thing you were saying gave like left me with so many questions, and I had to write so many things down. Um, but I guess that's for another day. <laughs> um, I'm, 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 I'm skimming through my notes to see the thing I wrote down. Oh yeah, so yeah, forget the last part. Um, parting words. Thank you for being here. Um, and I'm wondering when um, that play is coming up in which I'll play you. But <laughs> that's it. Say the last part again. Wondering when the what? The play in which I'll play you is coming up. Oh, sick. That's <laughs> such a good idea. I never even thought of that. No, remember there's a Instagram uh, messages where you're like, I need somebody to play me in a play or you're asking for a play and then I said, like, oh, me in it. And then you're like, <laughs> in New York, though. Yeah, okay. <laughs> I would love to do that play in Portland. You can definitely, I mean, I'm not in it, but you can play one of the characters. I'll write one where I'm in it and you play me. That's a great idea. <laughs> yeah, I've written two screenplays. They're short, so you'll, it'll be like 10 minutes. Perfect. Uh-huh. I'll pay you and stuff, obviously. Yeah. Okay. Parting words, thank you all for having me. I love y'all's work. I love the work you do for the public. All people are listening and paying you. Um, yeah, thanks for giving me the space to talk about all this BS. I mean, you know, it's, it's all super interesting to me, but so yeah. Uh, thanks for hearing me out. I mean, anytime you have an open invitation, seriously. Um, your words are super interesting in general for anyone who has ears, in my opinion. But I'm like, um, parting. I'm a bit drunk next time or something. I don't know. I haven't been drinking too much, but oh, that's that's really healthy. I was drinking during the entirety of this um, podcast. Next so. <laughs> <laughs> time, I did think about it, but I thought about it at like one forty-five, so it's too late. <laughs> um. Parting words, yeah, thank you, Manny, for stopping by to talk with us. Um, I always leave our conversations feeling a little less stupid, and I have you to thank for that. Um, <laughs> yeah, likewise, totally. Um, yeah, you, your, your capacity to hold the entire container of, like, global history and theology in this way that is 
generous and accepting, but also fully understanding is something that I, I struggle to comprehend because it just seems so impossible, but you do it so well. And thank you it's for impossible. that. It's impossible. You know, I, it's impossible because anyone, and I'm like ranting on a soapbox at this point, but hear me out. Anyone who's not a black woman is forever indebted to the work of black women, especially dark skinned black women. So go read Hortense Spillers, mm. Saidiya Hartman. Go read Sylvia Winter, mm-hmm. Christina Sharp, uh, Sojourner Truth. I mean, this work is out there. It exists. Mm-hmm. And if the least you can do it is read it, that's a place to start. Get an audiobook or something. The New Jim Crow, Michelle Alexander. I mean, start somewhere. <laughs> yeah. uh, I, I plan on doing this for the rest of my life. Just continue reading Black women and and pay, trying to pay off that debt because it is a debt that's unpayable. So it is an impossible labor. Uh, and it's a shame that more people aren't stepping up to, to try to do that and we're all gonna fail. People who aren't black women are always gonna fail at that. Um, but you have to try, that's my opinion. Yeah. Um, and on that, we're gonna say goodbye. Bye y'all. Bye, thank you.